Let's talk about sarcoma, a podcast that looks at the expected, the unexpected, and everything in between post-sarcoma diagnosis. Brought to you by Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation. With me, your host, Michael Whipper-Whipfley. And me, Catherine Mahoney. In this episode, we talk to family members about their experiences and sarcoma journeys with loved ones. In part one, we talk to Gabby, Bree and Mitch. This podcast contains stories of cancer, death and bereavement, which may be distressing to some listeners. Please reach out to your support network if you are affected or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Welcome to the pod, Gabrielle. How are you today? I'm well, thank you very much, Kath. And how are you today? I'm very good. Now, Gabby, um, can you tell me a little bit about your son, Adam, and, and his sarcoma journey? Okay. So, Adam was, it was an extremely honest, reliable, practical, even predictable, I would say, like just loyal person. He was extremely gentle and compassionate and he, and he had this really quirky, strong sense of self. He knew exactly who he was and he was so comfortable and secure in that own quirkiness. He possessed just an abundance of integrity and dignity. I think he was just innately decent. Adam loved music and he was able to pick up any instrument and just play a song by ear like you just could do it straight away. I don't know how, but he could. It was a gift. Um, Adam hadn't suffered any sort of illnesses beforehand, but and at 21 he thought he just pulled his groin at football and then he was just getting physio and, and massages and what have you. And then he realised that he was losing um, mobility and that he was developing more pain and he then subsequently went to doctors and very quickly, um, it got very serious very quickly. And, and we only had six months from diagnosis to, until when Adam died. Adam had what was known as a peripheral malignant nerve sheath tumor, which was on the nerves in his pelvis. And it was extremely aggressive, just horrific. So quick, so quick. I'm so sorry. So sorry to hear that, Gabby. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about, um, you know, what you miss the most about Adam, apart from his music? His face, his voice. I think a voice is always missed, isn't it? Mm -hmm. His presence. He had a very dry sense of humour too. Like he was just really witty and he had this, he hated, loathed small talk. So he just didn't bother with small talk. We just, and it come across probably as aloof sometimes, but it just, he just didn't see the point of it. He was extremely authentic mm-hmm. and just honest with who he was. And I think, as I said, I, I think I miss music that was Adam, my son. Mm-hmm. That's how, because he was, he was music. He was music. Yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful. <laughs> um, I, I I think a lot of chaps are the same about small talk, aren't they? They don't really see the point in I it. Think so. <laughs> and probably at twenty one, very much so. Yes, mum, stop that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> probably it's not something they think is worthwhile at that age. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, uh, Gabby, to to sort of take you back to to when you know Adam was sort of towards the end of of his journey, we. Were you aware that his passing was imminent? Um, you know, we, we had the medical team prepared you for that. Yes, they had. And Adam died in a his choice died in a small country town hospital, and um, we were told by the local GP we had a week to go, and that's all we had. We had we literally got that week. Um, it, everything was so quick and sudden and intense with Adam's illness and the sarcoma. It was just so just intense. And you couldn't take a breath because it just kept on changing mm-hmm. over and over again. It was just such a crazy, crazy time. Um, I think, regrettably, that the staff weren't prepared, which isn't their fault at all. It's just, I mean, they were lovely, but they didn't have the necessary experience or knowledge to manage it. I think it's just the severity of Adam's illness. So 
no, I don't think they were prepared for what it really was like, but they did their best in the situation. That must have been tough. Um, Can you tell me, Gabby, what coping mechanisms did you put into place after Adam passed? You know, did you speak to a therapist? Um, I was actually provided a counsellor through Peter Mac from the word go. So I saw her, she was incredible, saw her for the entirety of his cancer and then afterwards. And then I also had counselling through Red Kite, who's another amazing organisation. After he died, I found that for me daily routines became really, really important where it was every day, no matter how bad I was feeling, I was like, just get up, get in the shower, put on some colour, make yourself a pot of tea. And then I would just... I'd, you know, get out my drive, get on, I wasn't able to work, get on a bus, get on a tram, get on a train and, and just go anywhere, you know, whether it's a shopping centre or a park mm-hmm. or whatever. And I, I can honestly say to you that I think I cried on every piece of public transport in our area, you know, but it's just, it was just doing something and it yes. was, you know, and I think, oh, while we talk about crying, I think I cried uncontrollably for for the daily for the first eighteen months, you know, and I want to normalise that because yes. it, it, it was, it is uncontrollable. I'm an avid reader. I read. Yes, yeah, a lot, <laughs> all the time. Walking nature. Nature's another really great thing to put. Just anything beautiful. Surround mm-hmm. yourself with beauty. Yeah, because it just, it just seems to help. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I think we can take a lesson from that, from everything that's going on right now too, can't we? That it's just beauty helps. Yes. Yeah. yeah that, so. Gabby, that's that's fantastic advice, all of it. You know, and, and I think even even you talking about crying for 18 months, you know, for for someone listening, it's it's a release, isn't it? And it, don't beat yeah. yourself up. It's, it's you yeah. know, the age old better out than in, you know, and I think, yes, that's, I love that you got up, you got out, you got your colour on. You know, that's that's great advice for anyone else listening. Um, well, I knew if I did it, I'd be worse yeah. if that was possible. Mm-hmm. Because I just knew, I just, if I let myself collapse, I would stay collapsed. Not saying it would work for someone else, but mm-hmm. for me, I knew that was not the answer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And also you've got, um, you've got Brianna, haven't you? Um, yeah. So Adam, Adam yes, had a slightly younger sister. Um, so I guess that too in itself, you, you have to keep going. It's not just you. Yes. And we, and we ended up traveling when we could because mm-hmm. Adam, he, had, he did this bucket list he never got to do. So we went and did, did tick things off together, Bree and I, on did his bucket list for him. I love that you did that. And that must have helped you and, and Bree grieve as well and, and sort of yeah. get through things. Definitely. Um, did Definitely. you did you feel supported by family and friends when you lost Adam? Well, that's such a hard question to answer. I have to this day a really small group of girlfriends that are just so supportive and have been absolutely incredible. And even whilst they didn't know what to do or say or how to do it. They all, all have learnt on the job, so to speak, alongside of me. And I can't articulate how much I appreciate their support, how much I love them for it. You know, they're all just amazing people. Um, my family really, really struggled with their own pain and grief. Mm-hmm. And But now we, we are closer and better than ever. So... I think that that's a real lesson in there too is that people are going to bump up against each other with their own grief, especially when it's family. Mm-hmm. But to know that the love's there, you've just got just to trust that you'll get there in the end together. Because we all deal with things differently, don't we? And especially when it's family. Yes. They all love the person that's gone um, and we all process it in yes. a different way. And sometimes you think you're going to process it one way until it happens and you haven't, you know, you have no idea how it feels till it's sort of, till it's there. Do you? I mean, I certainly know from my life. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
and it's time frames too, isn't it? And people's mm-hmm. own life experiences, mm-hmm. what they're taking into it and their coping mechanisms, what they're bringing into it as well. Yes. It's, it's so confusing and, and complex. Mm-hmm. Gabby, did, did you find any of your relationships with your friends changed after losing Adam? I found many relationships changed and consequently I think it just became a terrible minefield. I think just many many people disappeared from our lives, people that have been lifelong friends. And I think the pain and the grief from losing so many people just then compounded with the grief from Adam's cancer and losing Adam. And, I mean, there's, there's some that I haven't seen since the funeral. Wow. And I still miss these people, you know. I still miss them and and that they're no longer in my life. And Mm -hmm. I understand their pain rubbed up against my, that my pain rubbed up against theirs and that they had their own personal triggers, whatever they may or may not have been. And I forgive everybody, but at the same time I can't say that doesn't still sting because it does, you know. It's to... When, when you lose so much, you don't want to lose those other people that you love as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I did a lot. Oh, that was... But it was horrible. Yeah, I bet it was horrible. And it went on It went on for like, again, I would say the first, the first couple of months were okay. I think it was like towards the start of the first year and then the second year is when there was this, this mass exodus. Mm-hmm. You know, so yes, everybody treated me differently. How could they not? Mm-hmm. You know, I was different. My life was different and had been totally destroyed and everything had changed. So, yes, of course they did. Um, it's just. No, I think, you know, it, it is, it's, as you said, isn't it? Some people just don't know how to be when some, when, when someone's no. lost, lost a child. They just don't know. And, and as you said, there's no right or wrong there, is it? But it must have hurt. No. Must have heard. And I think I understand my son who's children were the same age. I understand that. It was just too real, I think. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if the closer you are, the harder it probably is to be around that person. I don't know. I think there's so many factors affecting this. It's mm-hmm. not something that just be simplified. Yes, no, yeah. no, I I agree. Um Gabby, what do you believe um was Adam's legacy? His sister, Brie, <laughs> um, definitely his sister. Um, me, I hope, and, and uh, you know, what's the other thing I forgot to say when we were talking about what I was coping? One thing that I've tried to do over the few years since Adam died is I, I've, I've tried to start creating my own support net group to help grieving parents called Adam Blue, so that's what I'm hoping will be my legacy. Oh, that's fantastic. So, that, so tell me a bit more about that. Do you know what? When I, I say to people that when I was caring for Adam full-time, mm-hmm. it was the best version of myself that I could ever be and had ever been. And I just feel so deeply that this want and this need to assist others, you know, us Society is screaming out for ongoing support and assistance for grieving parents and mm-hmm. families. Um, so, yeah, it's finding a way to help on a pragmatic way, practically. That's where the help is needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking back, is there anything you would have done differently after Adam received a terminal diagnosis? No, you can't. You can't do that to yourself. Yeah. No, I think that's. That's not. I think that's I think that's really good advice yes yeah um if Gabby you were granted an audience with our health minister Greg Hunt what would you like to say to him um in light of you know losing Adam so caring for your child and their subsequent death when they have cancer excruciating I found it extremely hard to rebuild my life and I'm still muddling through that six years later we don't have enough resources available We desperately require systems that work with grieving parents' families, ones that allow for the fact that grief and loss, they aren't linear. We need everyone in our community, be it government officials, healthcare workers, and our support networks to be made aware 
how grief and trauma impact our lives. I can't emphasise this enough. Grieving parents need ongoing assistance and support for as long as they require it, as opposed to what society deems normal. I really want to create my own foundation named Adam Blue to work alongside such organisations as Cooper Rice Brady Foundation. The more we educate everyone, the better things will be. We need to empower the community as a whole, as well as support networks. The more we educate and raise awareness, the more supportive families will feel. One last story. I remember applying for the NICE program. You know the NICE program? Mm-hmm. Under, yep. At one point I wanted to create Adam Blue and the man interviewing me stated, is there really a need for that? And I think the issue people, the issue is that people don't know how much there is a need for it unless they've been exposed themselves to it. The trauma of caring for your child with sarcoma and the trauma of their death as well as everything else that occurs after the death is a long and painful and just it's just endurance. Support needs to be there alongside the whole way. Well said. Well said, Gabby. Thank you. Well, I feel strongly about it. No, well said. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Um, just before we finish, um, would you like to share any advice that you have for those listening who, you know, might have just started this journey that that you and Adam, you know, sadly walked? Well, there's so much I could say. Um, it's so hard just to put that in a couple of paragraphs. I think one thing I always say to people is to always feel what you need to feel, to do what you need to do and be what you need to be in any given moment. This whole thing's a marathon. It isn't a sprint. It's a marathon. And it will consume you. And whatever you need to do to just cope in that moment, just do it. Try not and get too far ahead of yourself. I know that is just so hard. But focus on the information on any particular given day because that's all you've got. You can't then, you have to try and find a way to get past that what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen in next week, what's going to happen in a month's time because all you have in that given moment is what the experts are telling you. You have to trust implicitly in what they are telling you because they have that knowledge. Um, to get too far ahead of yourself, it just causes more and more anxiety. Um, I also think I'm an extrovert. So this doesn't work for everybody, but I found the more I befriended everybody in hospital, the better it was because I still looked at it where it was the more people you communicate with, the better it is for Adam because they are caring for him. They're, they're, you know, the oncologist or the radiographers or, or the tea lady, you know, it's everyone is there caring for my son and therefore I made the effort to establish communication with everybody. That worked for me. And I think just lastly, reach out. Just there are people and there's organisations that are working so hard, such as Cooper Rice Brady, to help others and, and there are people there to catch you so reach out because we want to catch you that's the thing we want to catch you oh gabby oh you can have me in tears (laughs) that was beautiful thank you yeah it was it really was um yes thank you so much for sharing Mitch, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Um, lovely to have you back. Now, you were only 19 when your brother Cooper was diagnosed with osteosarcoma. How on earth did you process that? Um, in all honesty, I probably didn't. Um, I didn't know what sarcoma was. I had no inclination Coops had been sick or there was any sort of diagnosis like this coming. I remember mum calling me and telling me and I just, 
I didn't know what to think. I just, I couldn't believe it. I remember the next day I was coaching cricket, coaching under-14s cricket, and I was like, if there had been a nick behind that day, I wasn't given it because I just, my, my head was in a different space really. Um, and then, yeah, so in term, I, I didn't gra- grapple with it really initially. And honestly, I don't know how he did because I had no idea how to react. So. Mm. Had you heard of the word sarcoma before? I never heard of anything, had no idea what it was. And I think that's part of what we're trying to do with our foundation that we started in Coops' Legacy, just try to spread the awareness of sarcoma and the different types of sarcomas as well. So as Coop's big brother, you know, you've got to be all kind of staunch and strong. Was it really difficult? Did you have times where you closed the bedroom door and just slid down the door? It was hard at times. The first time I heard about it, mum had just rung me to tell me, I went straight home. We bawled our eyes out for half an hour. Coops was just about to walk in the door post seeing the doctor and receiving the diagnosis himself. And mum and I, we tried to uh, calm ourselves down and we were going to be those strong people for Coops as he walked in the door. Coops walks in the door, sees mum's been crying, and he goes, Mum, why have you been crying? Um, This is fine. We're going to get through this. Mm -hmm. And then he didn't realize that I was sitting on the couch and I could hear this conversation. I was like, holy moly. (laughs) If he's responded like that, then I have no choice to be the strong one here. And at times it it did get difficult because there's a certain level of guilt associated with being a brother with someone you love. They've um, been diagnosed with this ridiculously unfair situation Mm. and you're sitting there and you're fine and you're complaining about having uni stuffed you or copping a bruise in footy on the weekend and you just think he would love the opportunity to be at uni or like be doing school normally or playing footy on the weekend and so there's a certain level of guilt associated with all the feelings that you're feeling but you try to put that aside and just try and be strong for your brother. I think my role was mainly just trying to create normalcy for him because there was so much that wasn't normal with his life. So whenever I was around, I just tried to have a laugh, play a bit of PlayStation, talk about the footy. Um, that's that's what I found my role to be. I'm sure everyone has their own unique experiences, but that was what I tried to be for Coops, just that big normal brother. Yeah, because so much of Coops' life had changed and so much of it would have been talking about cancer. And and there's so much more to to a person's life than than a condition that they're fighting, isn't there? So by having that big brother who's still taking the mick out of him, I, I think that's that's a great role that you played. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if it was a great role. That was just the role I took on because, yeah, I, I could see from the outside that everything had changed and nothing mm. was normal. So if I could go in there and, yeah, take the mickey out of him, have a bit of a laugh with him, then maybe that would make things a bit easier for him. Um who knows? I'd like to think that it made it a little bit easier for him, but at the end of the day, <laughs> you, you can only make those sorts of experiences that much easier, can you? Um, you know, Cooper really set the tone by saying, Mum, what are you crying for? Uh, which just makes me laugh <laughs> because it's the type of kid he was. But um, at the same time, was that kind of when you talk about making the moments with him normal, which is just so crucial, you probably underestimate that, but um, with – his mates, did you spread the word and go, hey, Coop just wants things to be normal? I kind of left that up for him. And I think the way he acted throughout his battle as well, it made it easy to be normal around as well. Right. He never made a big deal about it. He tells a fantastic story. Um, he, um, we were looking for a new apartment. Um, he had um, been going through chemo, he'd lost all his hair. This is Coops, he's six foot two, big fella. And he went with mum and dad to this open house and he's wearing a hoodie and a pair of tracksuit pants. And he's walking around the house. And he's in, he, after the um, open house, he had a, um, he was playing touch with his mates. And he walked down to the park with his, um, to meet his mates afterwards. And he goes to them. Yeah, I just had an open house with um, mum and dad. We were just walking around. Um, the house was fantastic, but I'm pretty sure the real estate agent thought I was there to steal stuff because <laughs> he was this <laughs> bit. He'd just been going through chemo, bust all his hair. Yeah, just yeah. with the hoodie on. So I think 
that sort of an attitude made it easy to keep things normal around like for for me for his friends as well like he just very inspirational he never made a big deal about the treatment and what he was going through like the level of stoicism he showed throughout his journey is just remarkable when you think about it for a 16 year old he was so wise beyond his years wasn't he and always optimistic and and you know and as your mum said previously there were, it, was, it was always what's next, what's next, what's next. You know, he didn't just sit there and wait. He just fought it the whole way, didn't he? No, exactly. He always, he was ready for the next challenge. He just, he he always, yeah, it wouldn't take no for an answer. He was always ready to have another crack and hear something else. So, I mean, you were at uni. Um, did that really affect your studies? Probably I didn't realize how much it probably was affecting my studies because, like, I tried to just maintain and keep going normal. Well, like, part possible. Of, part mm-hmm. of my attitude was, well, I'm not the one going through cancer. Like, what excuse do I have here? So I did it. And looking back on it now, I, I think it clearly did affect my uni and my external life as well. But at the time, I probably didn't acknowledge that as well as I maybe should have. When did it hit you, Mitch? Well, the initial shock of the diagnosis was hard. Honestly, it probably didn't hit me until about two weeks before his death where I thought this is not going to end the way we want it to end. Um, I guess I tried to ignore that possibility for the previous 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um and so I guess, yeah, that's when it really started to sink in that this is, um, this is happening. Yeah, I know, I know. And it's, it's one of those things too where all that strength that you'd, you'd shown to that point as well of keeping things normal, you know, that, that act, I suppose, in a sense, um, which came naturally because that's what you did anyway, you know, that's when it would have been hard to continue that, I suppose. Um, that would have been the most challenging time to, to play things like they were just as they were before. Exactly. Yeah. Well, my own situation is there's always like the elephant in the room because everyone knew my little brother was going through a cancer journey, but you're not taught at school how to deal with like friendships and conversations. No, no. Like, so that was a really, and so it continues to this day because a lot of people know that I've lost a little brother, but it's not something you necessarily want to bring up or you know how to bring up in a conversation. Like, do you mention your brother is at chemo today? Do you Mm, talk mm. about like this sort of thing? So I guess normalcy is what we do because we know that that's, that's common to us. That's, that's what we know. So we just go down that path. It's such a good point. I think a lot of people in a situation, um, you know, like this where, where someone's passed, they don't know what to say. So that the, and and my understanding is people appreciate it. Um, I, I'm lucky enough not to be in that situation, but my understanding is people appreciate it when they say, "Hey, just to let you know, I'm, I'm thinking of you, mate," or um, "I just want to acknowledge what's happened." But nine times out of ten, people don't say something because one, they don't know what to say; secondly, they don't know whether they want you to hear it. Exactly, and it's <clears throat> because yeah, you're not so yeah because no one's taught how to talk to someone who's lost a brother or they're going through that so honestly if there's one positive i have taken out the situation it's just i feel now that i'm sort of equipped to deal with that and i like know how or and i know everyone's experience is unique as well and i can't say that my experience is representative of everyone else who's lost a sibling or a loved Mm. one um just for me though it's just a, like having, like using, trying to take a positive out of what is clearly mm. a tragic situation is that now I feel like I have the ability to go up to someone and say, look, I can't say how you're feeling right now or what you're feeling, but I just want to know that you're there. And just, yeah, even just asking someone how they're going, ask how their loved one is going, if they're currently going through the treatment mm. or how their family's doing. It, I, it, it always made a difference to me. Yeah. Like just knowing that it mightn't be that just that elephant in the room that you can like break that fourth wall and actually just address the issue. When you did lose Coop, um, how did you cope? Did you, did you talk to your family? Did you internalize it? Did you, did you talk to a professional? I didn't talk to a professional. Um, for me, it was anger. I was so pissed off that 
Coops had been robbed of the opportunity to live a full life. And that was probably something I felt throughout the whole treatment process as well. Why had this perfectly good-natured human who doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense, exactly. Mm. And that's that was something I really struggled to get my head around for so long. I was so anger. So I was so angry at what had happened. I and then that was also part of the guilt that like starts to creep in as well, which I think, you know, uh, survivor syndrome or something like that. It's just why didn't this happen to me? Why doesn't this happen to the people to deserve it? You know, it's just so a year later I tore my ACL, which is like it's a relatively minor thing in the scheme of things. But the whole time I was just like, I can't complain about this because I've like imagine like what Coops would have done to have only torn his ACL or something like mm, that. Yeah. So yeah, anger initially was probably the greatest emotion I felt, but then eventually I was I think able to resolve that and resolve the guilt associated and think that Coops wouldn't want me feeling guilty about enjoying my life. You know, he he'd want me to go out there and spot on bloody yeah. make the most of every opportunity I've got. The other thing too, Mitch, I think what would be hard as a young man, uh, I know I do this with my family. If things don't seem right at home, I kind of put my hand up to try and make it okay. And it's very confronting to see your parents when they're doing it tough. You know, you, not only the brother who's lost their brother, but you then naturally, I would think, put your hand up and you wear a different cap again that says, you know, I'm, I'm a young, fit, strong, Man, I'm I'm here for my family as well. So all of a sudden you have to play that role as well. So you know that's that's going to be another high impact on you as well to have to take on that role. Um, you're right. There is that sort of you just want to make things good. Yeah, exactly. I just want to make things good. But for me, the, again, this is just my personal experience. But I quite enjoy like talking to other people and talking them through their experience and like helping someone work through a bad five minutes. I mean, that's what it is because sometimes you see your mum, your dad, a friend or whatever. It can just be a little period where you just notice that they're down for whatever reason. And for me personally, I, I, it helps me like work through my own stuff as well, like just being able to talk to someone, talk them through their experience, let them know that they're not alone and it helps you know that you're not alone too. So for me, for whatever reason, I actually don't mind taking on that responsibility, but, I mean, that's just me. I'm weird. How old are you? <laughs> 24 as of a week ago. You're a bloody impressive guy, Mitch. You, you are. are an impressive no. guy. Although apparently his COVID lockdown beard was mm. less impressive, <laughs> a little bit more Santa. It was the bush ranger, I, wasn't it? Was I'd argue ranger. it was too impressive and <laughs> mum didn't like how impressive mm. it was. <laughs> Should it, is it is it at this point too? We get on the record that I would say out of the two brothers, um, Coops was a better sportsman. I think we should acknowledge that too. I'm not here to argue. Jesus Christ! Look at me. He was six foot three and he played a lot of cricket. <laughs> did he take anything from the open house? He did, didn't he? He, did, he, did, he, did. he said he didn't. There was a lot of cutlery missing. <laughs> yeah, I could hear it in his it. pockets. <laughs> he always took the innocent route, but he, yeah, he was sinister. We knew him, don't worry. Yeah. Uh, Mitch, you are a, a wonderful man. I'm not going to say young man because it makes you and me sound as old as we are, but you're a wonderful man and Cooper would be beyond proud, oh, so of, proud of how mate. you've um, navigated no the last four years. Because I think the other thing too to point out, Kath, is that um, – you know, Mitch does a lot of work for the foundation. Naturally, he, he wants to, but, you know, the demand and the call on him is is high as well. You know, Tanya spoke about the extension of the friends and the people that have contributed to the foundation, but the direct members, you know, Mitch, I know you do a lot of public speaking and you share the message, you share the word. Um, you know, the work you do is just sensational. I know it comes from the heart, but at the same time, it's a huge commitment as well. Um, um, I yeah. want you to know that that's, that's obviously recognised by by more than us. Um, and your mum and the family and the foundation, but you do such a great job. Uh, cheers, Whip. Um, yeah, it's just making sure that Coops's efforts through his battle weren't um, don't go to waste. And I couldn't live myself if I did that. And if I can talk at the odd function and help spread the word, then that's the least I can do. Grief is a really difficult thing to deal with, address, and I don't think there's a right or wrong way to go about it, especially as someone who may not have experienced grief themselves. You may see a friend or a family member going through grief um, and you just don't really know what to say or what to do. It does get better with time. 
but you'll never move on. Like Coops will always be a part of me. But And that feeling of grief is not mutually exclusive from happiness, from anger, from enjoyment of life. And it's probably part of it is like what helps you become the person I am, as I spoke about before, using that motivation of his life being cut short unfairly as motivation to make the most of my own life. So, yeah, just that... Yeah, grief isn't like a mutually exclusive feeling. So it's not like one's grief, one's anger, one's the grieving of of what you go through in your situation. It always exists. Coops will always be with me. That he has helped make me what I am today, hopefully, and what I've become. It's a really powerful thing, isn't it? Because when you think about grief, you think about the hard impact of of someone suffering with with grief. But what you're saying suggests you can you can turn that grief into realizing that's just a part of coop that's always there, which is a driving force. Exactly. I, I would never want to let go of my the feelings I had for Coops and the love that I had for him. And so it's always gonna be there. It's really powerful, buddy. That's, that's a beautiful great. way to put it. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, Mitch, thank you again so much for your time um and everything that you do for the foundation and people that have been touched by sarcoma. Thank you for coming on. No worries, Kath. Whip. Thanks for Thanks, taking the Mitch. time out to make this happen. Great job, buddy. Thank you. Bree, we just spoke to uh, your lovely mum, Gabby. Um, so we, we talked quite a lot about um, Adam and, and his journey um, and also, um, I guess, how it was for a mum. But you, um, as his slightly younger sister, I mean, you would have had your own experience. And and thank you for, for coming on and, and, and sharing your story. Thank you. You're most welcome. It's definitely a privilege to share my story in such an open manner as well. So thank you for inviting me. No, it's lovely to have you. Um, Brie, what was your initial reaction to hearing of Adam's diagnosis? I was actually sitting on a V-line bus. So I was traveling to go visit him and my father rang and he said, we've got the diagnosis. It's a rare form of cancer. And I think my heart fell into my stomach on this V-line bus. It was the whole the whole world just paused, and I was a very young nineteen. I was in nursing school. I was living in the city on my own, away from family, and obviously, mum was still overseas. So I was very much living my own life. Um, and I literally said to him, "Okay, I'll see you in an hour when I arrive. I'm on my way up. Um, I'm going to call mum and try and get her home because she was overseas. She had no idea how sick Adam was." Um, so it was for me, it was practical. It was okay, get to my family, get to mum, and then I'll deal with myself afterwards. Um, did you know what sarcoma was when, when you were told of Adam's diagnosis? I knew very broadly what cancer was, but uh, being halfway through nursing school, but I certainly didn't understand the nitty gritty and the specifics of sarcoma. But I was very lucky to be you know, studying in the healthcare field. So I literally grabbed my computer, logged onto my uni database and started researching the appropriate databases to find out what journey we had just embarked on. And I guess I sat there on this feline bus going, oh my gosh, this is just outrageous. I can't believe I've just sat down on a computer on a bus and researched what the diagnosis was. So I guess I sort of went, oh, I'm just going to go heads in blazing and then realised what I've just got heads in blazing researching. Was that overwhelming, (laughs) what you found? It really was. It was so overwhelming that I think I literally shut the computer screen halfway through an article and went, I need to stop. Mm -hmm. I need to take a step back. I need to go and see my brother and sit with him and let him process what he needs to process. And then I will, I guess, put that scientific cap back on down the track. But right now it was important to be with my family and not be that that, you know, budding scientist that I was. Um, Brie, would you, for, for a sibling listening, would you maybe recommend that they didn't go too far into Dr. Doctor Google and, and wait to see what the clinicians had to say? Yeah, I would definitely stop, regardless if you're, you know, studying the healthcare field or studying science or doing at high school, whatever you're doing, stop and just be there with your family. Um, eventually the healthcare professionals, the nurses, the doctors, the scientists, the social workers, the allied health, they will all sit down with you and say, what do you understand? What do you want to know? How can we help you? 
within that family dynamic to sort of support your understanding and your future as well as your siblings or your parents. Good advice. Good advice. Um, what changes did you intentionally make to your life post Adam's diagnosis? I definitely stopped studying certainly mm-hmm. as much. I did defer uni at one point. Uh, uni was barely 500 metres up the road from the hospital. It was very central and they were super supportive. But I couldn't do both. I couldn't be full-time literally studying the field that I was also then going into the hospital as a relative and supporting Adam as much as I could. So I stopped studying for six months. Mm -hmm. I definitely wasn't coping at my part-time job in hospitality. So I left that as well. And just, I really tried to focus on the family as much as I could, but also I was struggling internally as well. So it was, yeah. So, so do you, I I mean, I think that's great advice for, for anyone listening. I mean, as much as it would be difficult to defer, you can always go back to study. I mean, if your head yeah. is full of a family member's sarcoma journey, then yeah. maybe studying's not the thing you need to do right now. Exactly. And you can always go back to it. Some mm-hmm. people probably would be better continuing their everyday life as much as they could. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I thought it was more appropriate to stop personally and then go back if and when I was ready Mm -hmm. and maybe I wouldn't have been ready to go back to healthcare and that's okay too you can always change what you want to do in your life yes yeah you um but you're actually in palliative care aren't you I am so I'm full-time currently in palliative care Mm -hmm. I beforehand I was in general medicine yes and um I'm currently studying critical care to go into intensive care nursing so there's a lot going on in terms yes. of my healthcare world. Mm-hmm, there is, jeepers, creepers. Um, so I do see a lot of the sarcoma patients and they are their families. I'm very someone who champions the family aspect. Mm-hmm. I learned these skills in a way I should never have learned as a teenager and a 20-year-old and then going into my, my healthcare journey myself. But I'm giving back the skills that I had to learn very rapidly um, to families now. And it's a challenge. Sometimes I come home and I just can't cope. I just want to sit in the bottom of the shower and go, okay, that was my day, self-care time. And tomorrow I'll go back. Good. Okay. Well, that's good to, good to hear you are aware of self-care because that's a lot for you to take on because you're still only what, 20? I'm 20, uh, 26 now, I'll be 27 soon. Um, so I definitely You're still a whippersnapper to me. uh, I'm so young. (laughs) I'm one of the youngest ones at work. Um, but I definitely champion mm-hmm. self-care even beforehand. Whatever yeah. you did, your sports, your exercise, your meditation, your yes. yoga, keep doing keep it. Your doing video it. games, yeah. keep doing it. Good advice. Good advice. Um, Brie, did you find your relationship changed with Adam after his diagnosis? Um, and if so, in what ways do you remember? So only two or three months before he was diagnosed, I was, you know, giving a speech at his 21st birthday and then two months later we were at our grandfather's 80th birthday and I saw how sick he was and all of a sudden my our relationship flipped I had to advocate for him I had to push sort of nag a little bit for him to go and see the doctors to go to the emergency department twice I had to push for him to say doctors stop and listen to me because I am sick And being a young adult that he was, they weren't necessarily listening to his symptoms because they were so rare. So all of a sudden I was flipped into this position that I wasn't prepared for or understood. I really had to advocate for him and I had to advocate for mum to come home, to get her organised to come home. It's never a nice phone call to call your mother to say, your son is sick, he's really, really sick, you need to come home. So it was definitely a different relationship. Um, for him as well Mm because he didn't want his younger sister looking after him that was horrible for him so as soon as mum did come home he was like you need to stop and be my sister now so and I was able to do that yes good good um Brie it's well documented that siblings of sarcoma patients and cancer patients in general um often report they feel left out or forgotten um many feel guilty for wanting or needing extra attention Um, I know that's a difficult one to ask and to answer, but if you're honest, did you feel any of that through Adam's diagnosis? Most of the time I didn't. Our family were very supportive and very together. Well, my maternal family are quite small and very supportive, but 
it was my 20th birthday and Adam was still in hospital and we had organized between all the immediate family members for us to have a movie and a cake and just to sit down together just for a couple of hours so I could feel like that I was having some family time. But uh, not everybody got the memo and if a few relatives, extended relatives, showed up at the hospital and they had driven three hours um, and they flat out refused to leave and they forgot my birthday, my father forgot my birthday and they all said, no, we're here to visit Adam, you don't matter, your, situ- your birthday isn't important. And like Adam felt absolutely terrible but mm-hmm. he was so sick that he just he couldn't advocate for himself or advocate for me. So I went home and... I don't know how, but my, all my friends knew whether he rang them or they just knew that I needed care. And three of my girlfriends were on my front doorstep with a board game, bottle of wine, some cake, and we had a, they tried to cheer me up the best that they knew how. But being t- we were all 19, 20. We were so young. Um, but there was days where I felt that I wasn't the most important, and I guess my birthday was definitely that day but it wasn't all the time no good and I, and I hope you've had lovely birthday since then I certainly have <laughs> um would you feel comfortable telling us about uh, life after Adam's passing you know how you've talked about self-care what your coping mechanisms were uh, so at the start I didn't really use coping mechanisms as much as I probably could have I definitely utilised the psychiatrist and the psychologist through uh, sarcoma uh, organisations, especially Red Kite. They were always there. But it took about six to 12 months for me really to go, okay, I need to start to self-care. And it was actually during a period when my closest girlfriend who lives in Europe came over to visit. She was here for two months um, and she really inspired me. She goes, Bree, that's enough you need to, it's time for you to go back to who and realize who you are internally. And then this one night I woke up mid dream and I knew exactly how I had to go on with my life. And my brother and I, ever since we were toddlers would bake gingerbread together. It was a yearly Christmas tradition. And it was the last thing that we did together before he got so sick that he couldn't do anything. So I got a gingerbread man tattoo on my right foot, which was the foot that he was going to get amputated. So for me, it was my way of going, okay, every step that I take, he takes. So it really instilled self-care. So I started to go to the gym. I started to eat well. I went back to uni. Um, I really engaged with my friends again. I sort of went, it's time to sort of hopefully move on with my life. I'd gone through a period where I went, okay, my brother is now gone. I'm now an only living sibling. I don't, my kids won't have an uncle. I won't have, you know, cousins or nieces or nephews to grow up with. So it was like this life that we had envisioned together was now over. But it took me a while to go, okay, I still have life. He doesn't, but my life can be his life as well. So I, I guess for me, it was a really hard 12 months. But my friends, they really got me through it. They were amazing. Um, and now I do, I live my life every day for me is also for him. So, and that's when I learned that I wanted to go into palliative care. How can I give back my life to other, other families and other uh, young teenagers or adults or even older adults in lessons that I've learned internally? So I went into palliative care and now I see sarcoma patients every day and full time. Um, and it's a challenge and it's very difficult but it's rewarding and I feel every day I walk out okay I've done something positive with the day I've said to cancer you suck I'm going to do something about you today and I do that about today so wow (laughs) wow you and your mum are special ladies let me tell you (laughs) I mean (laughs) Adam might have been musical but I'm sure he would uh, he would be so proud of you both and everything that you've you've achieved um through his journey um can I can I just ask one more thing Brie before I let you go if you had if you had one piece of advice for other siblings walking this road what would it be Find your place in the world. Find out, um, sorry, find where you want to be in the world. You can acknowledge your sibling. You can learn to step, walk and dance with your sibling. Just because they're not physically here with you or they're in the hospital or 
they have passed away doesn't mean they're gone. You can reach out, use your friends, use your family, tell your parents that you feel forgotten about today. Their sole aim for the day is to keep the family going, whether that be getting into the hospital to sit with your siblings through whatever treatment they're going through today, whether that be get to Woolies and make sure there's dinner on the table, make sure that your younger siblings have showered and gone to bed. They're just trying to get through the day and that's okay. But communicate with them. Let them know what you're doing today, okay? And find your place in the world. There's nothing wrong with feeling like your terrible day. And one day you will feel that maybe they are there beside you. You could be on an adventure that you spoke about together. You could be doing absolutely anything that you want to be doing. This will never inhibit your entire life. Reach out. Use the resources. Ask if the nurse you're caring, caring for your family today. Ask the doctor. Because you matter. You deserve everything in your life. You matter. Wow. That's magic 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 advice and and so so from the heart Bree. so from the heart i really i can't thank you and your mum enough for sharing um thank so you. thank and, you and thank you to tanya and the cooper rice braiding and socket they're doing amazing yes. work they are absolutely both doing amazing work thank you thanks Bree. that's all right sarcoma awareness month is a time when we acknowledge those who are currently undergoing treatment and their families, survivors, those yet to be diagnosed, and the memories of those who walked this road, fought valiantly, and tragically lost their lives to this cancer. Socket to Sarcoma and the Cooper Rice Braiding Foundation wish to recognise each of these brave individuals, together with the remarkable not-for-profit organisations dedicated to raising funding and awareness for sarcoma including Rainbows for Kate, Kicking Goals for Zav, Hannah's Chance, Stony Steps Against Sarcoma, Joanna Sewell Research Grants, the GPA Andrew Assini Research Grants, and the Sarah Grace Foundation. With the generous help and support of the Australian community, each have worked tirelessly to fund critical research and to further shine a light on sarcoma 